Today's Bible reading, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have a baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it and asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors And to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in the holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, we've called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Excellent. Well done. Now... Speech is powerful, and without it, we struggle. Um, It is, in fact, it's not the only way that we communicate, but it is by far the loudest way that we communicate. And without speech, it is hard to be understood clearly and to express yourself. To, uh, you know, that's tough. Um, I thought I liked charades up until I started doing that, and um, (laughs) it's quite frustrating. I'm not very good at it. But of course, uh, that idea of actually being able to express yourself and using your voice and, uh, and of course silence, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the evening, is good and the idea of solitude is lovely, gives you time for thinking, but we like to speak and we like to communicate. 
But one of the characters in Luke's Christmas story has had his mouth shut for months and months. And we're going to think mostly about him this morning. See, when Luke records his Christmas story, before you even get to the birth narrative, which you would expect in Luke, right, to to be massive about the story of Jesus' birth. There'd be so much detail around that. Yet when you look at the column width, the amount of words that's used, there's hardly anything there at all. So much more detail and attention is given to other things. Because Luke wants you to notice some things. In fact, over the last few weeks, we've been noticing them alongside Luke, and particularly focusing around certain individuals. Uh, those that are deeply affected by the pending arrival of this child. Uh, Last week, Travis helped us think about Mary. And and she bursts forth in songs and praise, her her voice, her speech. She is repeating the sounding joy of the excitement of the pending arrival of the Saviour that has been promised to her. Uh, We heard her song, The Magnificent, last week. Immediately before her, Luke focuses in on Elizabeth, and you hear from her. She will be the mother of John the Baptist. That's Mary's relative. She's already six months pregnant when Mary uh, becomes pregnant. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 42 to 45, she, we are told, shouts a loud voice, speaking out the blessing of praise. And then there's Zechariah. We've met him already. But we haven't heard much from him. You you may remember a few weeks ago, Daniel actually helped us to understand the first time that we meet Zechariah. And in that part, he gets started, but, but when he's told the message, when the angel comes to him, his mouth is shut because he doubts. He asks for what convincing proof there might be. As if hearing an angelic messenger come to you isn't proof enough, he wants more proof and... The proof that he requires is to answer the question, how how is it going to be possible that such an unlikely event that my elderly wife, who is barren, and me being elderly, says Zechariah, will be able to have a child? It's laughable and improbable and impossible. And the angel says, do you want proof? And his mouth is shut. From that time until the child is conceived and for the nine months of the pregnancy... Now, just imagine that. Silent. I I mean, for all of us, you know, when your parents or when anyone tells you, just just be quiet for a minute. A minute. I want you to to go to your room and just be quiet for five minutes. Five minutes. I want you to spend a day and don't speak to anyone. Are you out of your mind how difficult that is? Nine months plus has passed for Zechariah. He's mute. And even if he wanted to say something, he couldn't. And so for all of that time, you look at that, you look at that man and, and you wonder what's going on in his mind and all you, you just hear the crickets being cued, don't you? There's nothing at all. At best, he's doing charades, which is why we started the way we did. If you look to chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel and look at verse 22, it says that when Zechariah comes out of the temple, because that's where he's been when he loses his speech, he comes out and he could not speak to them. They realised that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, um, but remained unable to speak. You, know, you almost wish that you actually someone videoed that, because it'd be hilarious. He comes out and he's like, like, he's like, like how's he going to describe what's taking place? My wife's going to be pregnant, and all he, he can't say a word. They understand that he's seen a vision, but for the next nine months, nothing at all. But now that's all about to change. 
And in fact, you won't be able to keep Zechariah quiet. It's almost like one of those scenes when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden the music starts to swirl and you're like, oh no, I didn't know this was a musical. And it's just like, I can feel a song coming on. And it's exactly what's happening in Luke's gospel. In fact, it's already happened when you think about Mary. This actually runs a bit like a musical. The music swelling around you and Zechariah is about to start singing. But before you listen to the song, let me just remind you for a moment why Zechariah might be praising God. Because this is the weirdest thing. When Luke begins, as I said before, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He wants you to go back. He wants you to get the origin story right. And you'll only understand that if you're understanding that the birth of John the Baptist needs to happen. And that child will need to have a father and a mother. And so Zechariah is very important, as is Elizabeth. See, Zechariah at this time is a priest. And when we've met him, first of all, he's serving up in the temple. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And while he's there, he receives that vision, comes out mute. He's told that he is going to have a child. And God indeed steps in. You hear from that angelic messenger that they are going to have a son, and he's to be called John. He'll be a break from the family tradition. He won't be named after his father or any of his descendants. He will stand unique in history. But Zechariah, as I've already said, has his doubts. And now the very time that he might want to shout it from the rooftops, he just watches on and he is silent. He sees his wife as she blooms through her pregnancy and he is only ever going to be a silent witness. And you wonder, did he think he was going to be like that forever? Did he think he'd ever get his speech back? But when their son is born we read from the passage that we had read a moment ago, these amazing words. His mother speaks up and says he's not going to be named after the dad, but he's to be called John. The relatives go, huh? And then they make signs to the father. He asks for the piece of uh, writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he writes down his name is to be John. And then in verse 64 of Luke chapter 1, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. Unreal. And you'd imagine right at that point, he'd be just so fixated, like, I'm, I'm speaking. You know, he'd be like, look at this, I couldn't do it for nine months. It'd be... But that's not actually what you hear him doing. He begins to speak and he immediately, well, what would you do? What would you say after nine months of silence? He's had a lot of time to think. And in verse 60, well, actually in verse 64, we're told that he praises God. Down in verse 67, we actually see that what actually happens is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. To to prophesy is to speak for God. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. He hasn't spoken to anyone about anything. And now the very first thing that it seems that he's about to say are the very words of God spoken. And that's even more weighty when you remember that for the last 400 years, since the last prophet Malachi, no one has spoken for God. It's like God has been mute for 400 years. And now there are words from God everywhere. Something momentous is taking place. And this silent witness now is about to prophesy and speak for God. And so what does Zechariah say? Once this doubting priest is shown now to be the delighted prophet. And that's what I want us to see this morning. The delight of this prophet. Who can 
can't but speak out. In fact, he's going to be repeating the, the sounding joy of what he has discovered. And so have a look at verse 68. In verse 68, you read these words. In fact, hopefully they'll appear up on the screen. Luke, um, Mark, can you flick it to us? Thanks. Excellent. That's probably all too small to read. Maybe not. In verse, 60, um, in verse 68, you read the words, Praise be to the God, to, sorry, to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Now, what's interesting in that, when he starts to speak, it's almost like, Zechariah, take a breath. Like there's, like, there's some punctuation in the NIV, but as you read it, it's just like one, just, he just can't stop. Off he goes. One long sentence. And now, in a sense, what he does is really pick up where Mary, in her song, had left off. Zechariah is similarly amazed about how God has taken a specific interest in the people of his world and a specific interest in keeping his promises to his people. And it's not hard to see the emphasis on God's people throughout this passage. He is the God of Israel. He's redeemed those that belong to him. He's raised up the horn. He's sent the promised one from David. He's interested in what he's going to do to bring salvation. And when you look at what he's done, it's awesome. This is highlighted in yellow a little bit for us that he has come to his people, that he has saved them and shown mercy and he has rescued them or he's delivered them so that his people, down in verse 74, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for all of their days. See, what Zechariah is actually picking up on is, here's this thing that we've been waiting for, we haven't heard from God for so long, but, but he's actually active for us and he's doing something amazing. He's redeeming, he's visited us, he's saved us, he's showing us mercy, we can be led and now we can serve him. In fact, what Zechariah is really doing is demonstrating that he knows his Old Testament. Perhaps that nine plus months of silence has allowed him to be reminded of all the things that he's been longing for. He's speaking like one of the holy prophets of old that he mentions in verse 70. Here's one of them. This is Zechariah in Zechariah 37. He says such a similar thing, Zechariah, uh, sorry, Ezekiel here. He says, I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel there will be one king over all. He goes on to say, I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I'll be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant. Here's this thing that's longed for. And he's yearned for it to come. And Zechariah is saying, here it is. It's here. And when he says that, he's actually identifying that this is coming not just with the birth of his son, but because the birth of his son is actually the precursor to the birth of this other child. 
This one who is going to become, who has been raised up as a horn of salvation. It's a reference to, to Jesus, in fact. The one who will rule and who will reign. See, when we understand God's commitment to his people throughout all history, we realise that why that is the case of how it gets fulfilled is because he's done it through Jesus. And Zechariah sees it. Sees it at the birth of his son, John the Baptist. You're going to have to wait a few more months to see the birth of Jesus, but Zechariah gets it then and there. Because here's this God who makes promises, and he's promised that he will send one ahead. And here is the God who makes his promises. And he explodes into praise. And you'd have to say that's probably the right response. That we would also want to speak of what we knew to be true. Zechariah has come to this understanding of poof, he repeats the sounding joy. If you have any understanding of who Jesus is and the salvation that he's brought, then poof, repeat the sounding joy. Speak it out and live it out. See, God keeps his promises. And when you think about the promises of what he's promised to do, to a people that have been waiting and longing that God would interact again with them, but they've thought that he's been silent and mute to them, he's come. And he's raised up the one who will be their saviour. He's about to show them incredible mercy. He hasn't forgotten them. In fact, he will remember them. And what's interesting, actually, in that passage, you may have already picked it up, is that all of the verbs are in the past tense, yet they all refer to future events when Zechariah speaks them. It's called the prophetic past tense. Things spoken that will happen in the future as if they've already taken place. And Zechariah says, this is what you have done. But Jesus isn't even born yet. But this is what you've done, God. So good is God at keeping his promises and Zechariah knows it. Do you know it? That he's a God who keeps his promises. Well, you also ought to know this, that he's a God who, who isn't silent, who isn't mute. In fact, he's a God who speaks out and sends a message. And Zechariah recognises that when he looks at his son, that's the task that the child that will be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth will have. So Zechariah that day, as his tongue is loose, praises God for what he will do in Jesus and then looks at his own child and says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You'll be one who will speak the very words of God like I'm doing right now. You, son, little thing wrapped up there in front of me. He's about eight days old. And you will go on before the Lord and prepare a way for him. You'll be the forerunner. You'll be the... You'll be the part of the origin story for this one that is coming. And so you see in Zechariah, not only him rejoicing over the Messiah that will come, but he sees his own son. And he reaffirms what he was told back earlier when the angel visits him in verses 16 and 17. It says of his son, he will bring back many to the people of Israel, to the Lord their God, and he will go on before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That this child that Zechariah looks upon and wants to praise is going to reach out into the area. And this is exactly what we see happening in the life of John the Baptist. Calling on people to repent and believe. 
to know that there is one who's coming, one whose sandals John the Baptist isn't even worthy to untie. The one that comes after is greater than him. And he says, you, my son, says Zechariah, will be this one who will go on, promised. In fact, picks up on a prophecy from Malachi. In chapter 3, verse 1, and verses 4 and 5 and 6, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God's saying, I'm going to send judgment, but I'm also going to send mercy, and before I send all of that, I'm going to send the message. I'm not silent. I send my messengers to speak. And Zechariah that day sees it as he sees his son. And of course, God still does the same thing. Because words are powerful. They're the loudest way that we communicate. And God has given us his incarnate word to this world. He gives us his word in scripture. And he says, speak it out. Proclaim it. Prepare the way. Similar message to point one, really, isn't it? If God's a God who keeps his promises, and if he sends his message, and if you've got any hope, sorry, any appreciation and joy of that, then will you repeat it? Would you repeat the sounding joy that you've received? Because the last thing I want you to see from Zechariah's song is exactly the content of why it's so joyous. Have a look at verses 79, sorry, 77 through to 79. It says that the message that this child will prepare will be to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah is deeply affected by God's will for his kid, John. Because he is so deeply affected by the one that is coming after him. He is the forerunner, but look at what he's preparing the way for. And it is astonishing. This one that's coming is Messiah. And he's going to bring salvation. He'll bring forgiveness. If you're worried about judgment and disobedience, don't, don't you understand that he's coming in tender mercy? And he will take you from darkness and shine. He'll give you light and peace. In fact, that's actually the dominant theme, not only in this song, but out throughout Luke's gospel, this idea of light and darkness. It actually picks up on an ancient theme. One that comes from that classic Christmas passage from Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2. That there is a people walking in darkness. And and of course, that's talking about all of humanity. All of us. The, The darkness that our sin creates from us as we are cut off from God. Kept kind of silent from Him. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And Zechariah, when he looks at his son, says, you're the forerunner for the light, for the sun that's coming, the the new day that's about to dawn, this great light. 
And for those of us who have been dwelling in the land of deep darkness, a light is about to shine on us. It's the same thing that Malachi had been longing for and the prophet of God had spoken the words of God 400 years earlier and said, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Here's the longing. Here's the joy. Come into the light and leap about and frolic. Or... Keep groping about in the darkness, cut off from the light. But when you come to see who Jesus is and the joy that he brings to this world, this child born that first Christmas is the one that brings light, which is all about freedom. I mean, the freedom to to, to frolic and dance about like a calf. I don't know if you've ever tried doing that. It's way more fun doing it where you can see when you're doing it, right? I actually tried this on Friday night as an experiment. I was camping at the basin, so there's not much light around anyway, and so just turned the headlight off and just thought, I'm just going to run about and dance for a little while. No one could see me. I didn't care, right? <laughs> I actually did this. It's really stupid because there's goannas and there's wallabies and there's trees, right? And water and all that. It's much, much, much easier to do it when the lights go on. And so that's the point. Anyone, if you want to feel the freedom to run and dance and jump for joy, you don't do it in pitch black and in unfamiliar places. But but that's what sin does. That's that's what it's like. It keeps us away from the light. And at, at the very point when we think we are most free and living for ourselves and doing what we want, we are actually most enslaved and most unseeing kept in the dark. But Zechariah knows that a new day is dawning when Jesus comes because there will be salvation and there will be forgiveness. This is God's tender mercy to his world. He'll take us and he will shine upon those who are living in darkness and in the shadow of death and he would guide you, your feet, into a path of peace. Is that what you want? Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we've received in Jesus, that we might walk in the way of peace? In fact, it's an interesting thing in this little passage. It's echoed also in Luke's Gospel, these twin themes about forgiveness, a God who is able to to take away sin and also to guide. So there's this picture in Luke of turning and guiding that constantly comes up. And you notice in this little passage here that happens. He comes to bring the forgiveness of their sins. And in the last part of verse 79, he will guide your feet into the path of peace. He'll show you how to live. He'll show you how to live. To turn and to show you how to live. And that is because, though you might think living in darkness is what you want, God's message is to come into the light. And that message is joyously awesome. I was trying to think of a way of putting it. Um, It's not just joy. It's joyously awesome. It's unreal, isn't it? Isn't this astounding? Isn't this this the best news you've you've ever heard? It, It grips Paul's heart in Colossians, and he says it this way. He rescued us. Like, we were about to die, we were about to perish, we were about to drown, and it was all about to overcome us. We were in the dominion of darkness, but he brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. He did that. And now we have redemption. 
and the forgiveness of our sins? Do you not think that this message is joyously awesome? Yes, 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 that's right. So let's stop and let's summarise. See, we ought to really understand and embrace and appreciate what God has done to us in the bringing of his son into the world. How could we not then repeat with sounding joy what he has done? Understanding his commitment to his people. Because he's a God who keeps his promises. He sends his message. He isn't silent. He's not mute and dumb to us. He speaks and he invites us to speak for him. And his message is joyously awesome. And when we appreciate that that experience is only possible because of the freedom of forgiveness that Jesus brings, not because of the birth that's going to happen a few months beyond the birth of John the Baptist, but because John the Baptist will be the one who will declare that this one is coming, is the salvation of the Lord, who will actually continue to travel to his own death. And it's when Jesus dies that the freedom and forgiveness is gifted to us, which is so joyously awesome. Are we then deeply affected by these things? See, Zechariah is silent and he's bursting to tell the world the news that his wife's going to give birth and he's going to have a son who will prepare the way for the Messiah. But he is involuntarily silent. But I wonder, is, is that true for us, perhaps? Where we understand the news and we've received the message and we think it's joyously awesome, we'd just rather not speak it out loud. And so we self-regulate voluntarily. We're mute. And I'm not saying you have to break into a song about it. You don't have to make it a musical as you were you know, going through the Woolies checkout. Let me tell you about Christmas. Or I don't know what you want to... Just say something. You could praise. You could bear testimony to the one that has done this for you. You could say something. And can I suggest that this story isn't just something. That it actually means everything. Or it means nothing at all. And if you aren't sure that God has in your life done anything worthy of celebrating, then can I just put before you today that today would be a great day to reach out through faith and receive the freedom that only Jesus gives. You will never ever find a better Christmas gift than this. Not ever. And so if that's you... You might want to speak up. You don't have to do it right now. You could, and that'd be fine. You might want to talk to one of us afterwards, or there'll be some of us gathering for prayer, and we would love to pray with you. If that's something that you have never done and never thought about, never understood, you'll never, ever find a better Christmas gift than understanding what it is to see what God has done in Christ. And in fact, if you want to see what it looks like, it looks like a very simple meal that takes us from the cradle to the cross. From birth to death. 
where we're reminded of this baby that's born, that will grow into a man who, because of his tender mercy for this world, will give over his life as the ultimate gift for you. And like any gift you receive in a few days' time, you won't earn this gift. In fact, you don't deserve it. But freely given from a God who is tender in his mercy, that rather than you receive judgment, he gives you life and says, here is my son, given to this world. And anyone who believes in him will not be cast into darkness, will not perish, but receive everlasting life. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to look upon this gift. It's unwrapped and it's raw. It reminds us of a death. And it was brutal. And it was the time where you bore the sin of the world and your wrath against sin was paid for. It was brutal and it was effective. It dealt once for all the sin of the world that we might receive life, salvation, that you might rescue us from the dominion of death and you take what we deserve and you give us what we don't. So we thank you for this gift of a body broken and blood poured out. And as we take this bread and juice this morning, Lord, would you help us to remember the incredible gift that we have received and that your message to us is joyously awesome. And Heavenly Father, would you bear it on our tongues that we might be like John the Baptist, preparing the way as you continue to send out your word, that we might speak this message repeating it with sounding joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask those who are helping to serve this morning if you would come forward. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then the invitation is to come and to take and to take the bread and eat. And if you would hold the cup and we drink in a moment together as a demonstration of the unity that we have in Christ. Come. And by faith, feed and nourish your soul.